Welcome to the CSEE Research Podcasts, a series of conversations about projects taking place at the Centre for the Study of African Economies at the University of Oxford. I'm Ashley Popel, an affiliate member of the CSEE, and I'm currently working as an economist at the World Bank's Climate Change and Disaster Risk Management Unit in South Asia. Humanitarian workers carry out incredible life-saving work every day on the front line of crisis response to assist those in the greatest need. Yet repeatedly, despite the fact that billions of dollars are spent annually on humanitarian support to households in crisis, there is very little evidence on the impact of the support. This project is one of the first large-scale evaluations that rigorously tests the impact of humanitarian cash transfers delivered in anticipation of a sudden extreme weather event and the importance of being timely for an impactful response. Today, we will be discussing our research on anticipatory cash transfers in climate disaster response, a project run in partnership with the CACE, the Center for Disaster Protection, the World Food Programme, and UN Archer. Joining us today to discuss the project are Stefan Durkin, Director of the CACE and Professor of Economic Policy at the Bavatnik School of Government, Ruth Hill, lead economist, and Ben Bronkhorst, both in the poverty and equity global practice at the World Bank. Welcome. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Ashley. Thank you. Hi, Ashley. Good to be here. So a little bit of context to set the stage before we dive in. In 2020, Bangladesh experienced the second highest and second most protracted floods in decades. This extreme event had devastating impacts, but this time a group of UN humanitarian agencies were ready for it. Two weeks before the floods hit, a forecast-based trigger was activated, and these NGOs and agencies jumped into action. The World Food Programme, for instance, delivered 4,500 tucker, which is approximately two weeks of food expenditure for a household, via mobile money to over 23,000 households forecast to be affected by these extreme floods in northern Bangladesh. Our evaluation focuses on measuring the impact of these anticipatory cash transfers on household welfare. So to kick us off, Stefan, can you share with us what anticipatory action is and why this approach was seen to be innovative in the context of responding to a humanitarian crisis? Thank you, Ashley. The term anticipatory action in humanitarian response, well, it's in the words, really. It's you try to anticipate and you want to act before the, before the crisis hits. So it's basically about can we actually get certain processes, actions, responses to happen before a, a, a particular context turns into an emergency in a real crisis. And of course, the advantages are quite clear. You know, there's something to do with timing. You can reach people before they are really already in desperately need. So you can actually give them some resources and ways of responding. And what's then also important is that, you know, when these emergencies happen, it's, it's not just a number of people that are in need, you know, whole systems, whole structures, they begin to become chaotic. And by being beforehand, you allow people to just to, to plan a bit more carefully and to actually get themselves prepared before the event happens. And of course, that would be quite amazing and innovative because a lot of humanitarian action tends to come quite late. You know, we think, you know, we hear a disaster happening, but it then takes often a lot of time before support gets into place, you know, maybe 50 up to 100 days sometimes before actual responses are actually uh, on the ground. And so this creates just so much gain in time for people, but also agency. People can actually organize a bit better how they can respond and keep their dignity in these crises. 
Thanks, Stefan. And you're right. In this context, WFP were able to respond on average 100 days earlier than they have in previous years, which is a significant amount of time. And of course, the question often arises, why haven't we done this before? Similarly, why, why is the evidence base on this so thin? So Ruth, I wanted you to come in to reflect on why it's challenging to conduct impact evaluations in the humanitarian sector, and what are some of the ways in which we can overcome these challenges? Yeah, well, I think sort of, as Stefan just outlined, you know, when an emergency occurs, everything is, is thrown into disarray. And that includes, you know, ability to collect data, to think about how to, to evaluate the sorts of emergency responses that are being put in place. The fact that things are, are moving very quickly can make it very hard to plan an evaluation, as well as actually just, you know, managing the logistics of conducting a survey and, and, and implementing an evaluation design. So I think one thing that we can can do, and we can talk a bit about how, how that played out in this, in this situation, is being ready with evaluation plans for emergencies, sort of, you know, an anticipatory evaluation designs, as it were, to match anticipatory support. So designs that will only be activated when an emergency actually occurs, but be ready with the thinking and the planning and the infrastructure in place needed to, to conduct evaluations as and when needed. So that's one reflection. A second reflection is that, um, you know, I think something, and I don't know, you know, from conversations with you, Ashley, as we were doing this work, you know, this is something that we came across quite a bit was this, you know, there's this very strong humanitarian principle to meet any need that is found. And that feels like that runs very counter to sort of to randomizing who who does and who doesn't get support. And so sort of sort of it's a bit of a clash culturally that we, you know, there's a dialogue that needs to happen there to see, well, how do we manage to fit these two ideas together? Um, in a way that's comfortable for for both um, people implementing support and also meets the needs of a research, a real good rigorous research design. But that said, I think you know more and more, you know, we are able to do that and having that conversation and strong recognition that you know when the need is so much greater than the supply of support, there often isn't really any fair way of rationalizing who gets support and who doesn't, um, and randomizing. Who, who receives support can be actually really quite appropriate in that in that kind of context. Also, the possibility of using regression discontinuity design approaches around the cutoffs that determine whose need is being met and isn't being met. And in our case, we used you know a feature of the rollout that created a somewhat random element in who was treated and who wasn't. You know, by the by virtue of of, of um, we'll probably come to talking about this as we talk more about our evaluation, but who which which households were able to receive the payments through the mobile money providers that were being used. Thanks, Ruth. Yes, so in our context, we drew on a quasi-experimental design whereby households who, due to the fact that the World Food Programme had to use only one single mobile money provider to deliver the cash transfer, and despite the prevalence of a large number of mobile wallet providers in the context in which we were operating, it meant that some people were given cash and others will not, were not, despite being similar in terms of their vulnerability and, and both being on pre-existing lists. So this really gave us an opportunity to come up with a valid control group and hence measure the impact of these cash transfers. So let me now turn to Ben to share what are, what are some of the results that excite you most in our paper? Thanks, Ashley. 
for me, honestly, I think there's so many results that are exciting because we're evaluating um, such such, an, uh, such a novel intervention here. But uh, I'd say overall something that stands out is just um, how long-lived and broad some of the effects that we find are, um, especially considering that this is quite a small one-off cash transfer. So firstly, we, we find sort of strong effects on on food security, the cash reduced, the number of days and the number of households uh, that were going without eating during the flood. Um, but beyond this, even though we only measure welfare outcomes uh, three months later, we find that the transfer significantly increased the number of meals that children were eating and whether they had access to three meals in a day. And since childhood nutrition is so important to to longer term development, I think this result alone is something to celebrate. But we also find, you know, treated households experienced less asset loss and damage, and in particular, the productive assets like livestock and and poultry that are very important in this context. They were also reporting higher life satisfaction three months later, and we find uh, some evidence that the transfer helped with the recovery too. So treated households were more likely to replant crops um, and they were more likely to be participating in labour markets um, after the flood. And I think, you know, taking taking all these results together uh, would be really surprising and, you know, even unbelievable in uh, ordinary times. But when we consider the crucial timing of the transfer relative to the flood, these results can sort of in part be explained by the fact that the recipients were able to take different actions at this critical juncture in time. And uh, at least all, all the data that we collect in surveys supports this idea because households receiving the transfer were more likely to take preemptive actions. They took more actions. They were more likely to um, stock up on food and evacuate themselves or livestock in anticipation of the flood. Yeah, so I, I want to add something to it, to what Ben is saying, is because, you know, of course, what we ended up doing was an impact evaluation. But implicitly, we also report almost a bit like a process evaluation. And I can't help it that I, where I start with being excited is actually just the fact that we could document and very carefully then later on show the impact of it of something that is so original, something that was rarely done, which is basically, can you basic on the basis of forecast models of hydrology, together with digital payments that is fairly recently being rolled out in the form of digital wallets in Bangladesh, can we get this cash in time? Does it work? Do we see that the people actually are getting it? You know, the percentage of people who got what we are meant to get was uh, was 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 close to 200%. And then in, in, in on top of that, can we then show that something that is so actually quite new and innovative in this whole sector, well, actually does something proper. It may not be massive as effects, but as Ben was saying, there's lots of different things where we show this is exactly what we would have hoped to do, that it actually can change something, not least what you were saying, Ashley, earlier. Normally, the WFP comes 100 days late. And so just the fact that you can actually document, look, this really makes a difference coming in time and doing this carefully and using the science, using whatever techniques you have, carefully plan ahead. You can actually get the support there and it makes a difference. Maybe not a massive difference, but in all our results, it's, it is a difference and it, it is a size effect that is meaningful.
Thanks, Ben and Stefan. So in sum, yes, we saw that the cash transfer, despite being quite small, reduced food insecurity during the floods, but also had welfare impacts later on, and households reported taking more action before the floods. So taken together, this suggests that the timing of the cash transfers really matter. Our paper <laughs> inspired many conversations and also came across some interesting reactions as well as facing quite a few challenges um, whilst conducting the research. Ruth, I'm curious, what were some of your reflections of some of the challenges we faced, whether it was an analysis, data collection, or even sharing of results? So I think, you know, one, one key challenge that we had was that the anticipatory action plan was signed just days actually before the trigger was activated. So these, these monsoon floods that occurred happened right at the beginning of the of the monsoon season. So we had, we just hadn't had the time to fully prepare a contingent evaluation plan. Um, we also implementing agencies hadn't fully prepared their interventions and how they were going to reach households in the event that the trigger was activated and then suddenly the trigger was activated. So uh, just as they were sort of updating their rollout plans and, and thinking about how they were going to reach households, which households they were going to reach. We also had to be iterating on the design of the evaluation and updating the design. Um, so that was definitely, definitely a challenge uh, that I'm very happy that we were we were able to to overcome because you know it wasn't for sure that we would at the beginning. The second challenge was also that because all of this is happening very quickly. Uh, was also happening in the summer of 2020, which was during COVID. So there was very strong mobility restrictions. We had to find a survey firm that could implement high quality phone surveys quickly, that could advise us well on which questions would and wouldn't work, that had very well-trained enumerators that were ready to, to start surveying quickly. So that was a big challenge, but I do sort of want to use reflecting on that challenge to really give a, a big shout out to the data collection firm that we worked with, Data uh, in Bangladesh, incredibly high quality data firm that's been operating for years that has done surveys on this topic for many years. And really without having that firm, I'm not sure how we would have been able to do this work and ensure that we were collecting high quality data that was appropriate in the questions that were being asked, that was thoroughly done and that was um, was giving us the kind of data that we needed for the evaluation, even though we had to implement it quickly and in person. I think there's also some reflections that you alluded to, Ashley, in terms of, you know, how our results were, were received, but I think it'd be really nice to hear your reflections on that. Sure. So when we presented our results to the World Food Programme, although we were really excited that we had so many stars and so many different outcomes, we were surprised to see that they were actually quite disappointed insofar that the, res the effects were not as large as they would have expected. Now, to, to be clear, when you ask the World Food Programme, what is the purpose of these ancestry cash transfers? It's really to meet an immediate food security need at the time of the floods and there's not really an expectation of recovery or longer term results and given that we were measuring these outcomes three months later with that was that tended to be quite widespread over a set of outcomes arising from a very small cash transfer so to be clear this was roughly two weeks of household food expenditure during floods that lasted many, many more weeks later. So I think the conversation led to a questioning of whether the amount of the cash transfer was appropriate. And in subsequent years, the World Food Programme 
did a re-evaluation of the amount of cash transfers and have increased the cash transfers by, I think, roughly 20 US dollars. And they've also rolled out a randomized trial or at least designed a randomized trial to test the impact of receiving cash before versus after the flood, which is really the, the question that they were hoping to answer, but was not feasible in the context in which we were operating. So it was very exciting to see the ways in which the research was being picked up and actually shaping um, future policy interventions and designs, even if <laughs> the, the response was initially a bit disappointed. So Ben, I wanted to turn to you to reflect on what are some of these other open questions that could benefit from further research? So I mentioned the size of the cash transfer, um, but I'm sure there's there's many more. Yeah, so you also talked about um, sort of this question about what are the effects of an early cash transfer relative to one that um, comes after the shock. And there's already, uh, you know, intervention um, RCTs planned to look at that question. But one of the other important questions that came up is what it, what is the relative effect of information versus the liquidity that comes with cash? And so this is it's obviously a difficult question to answer and not one that we can uh, sort of disentangle in our results. But um, we suspect that um, both these things are relevant in our context. So the cash comes with some kind of early warning of, of the flood and that might you know, encourage um, households to take action. But then there's also the liquidity that allows households to um, purchase things they might not otherwise be able to afford. And just one other question I'll mention, um, I think more on sort of uh, applying this in, in other contexts, there's questions about where we have good enough data to sort of develop credible forecasts and to set up these kind of trigger uh, mechanisms and also the, the systems to actually deliver um, cash or some other kind of support ex ante. Thanks, Ben. And I think to add to that, there's also questions of what does an anticipatory cash look like in the context of, say, a sudden onset disaster like floods versus a drought, which is much slow onset, or even in a protracted crisis setting where you have multiple droughts following one after another. So these questions have followed a lot of the initial work that's being done on anticipatory action, I think, is really pushing the envelope of what this policy instrument looks like in different contexts and different settings. Ruth, what are some of your other policy takeaways from engaging on this topic for the past couple of years? So I think it's really around those issues you were mentioning, which is that the time, so it's not just what you do, it's when you do it. So the timing of support matters and that when you provide support is going to be different for, for different contexts and disasters. So having this better sense of what do households, not just what do households need, but when do they need it? So in this context that we studied, it was, there was a big difference between households having some support prior to the flood and which enabled them to take certain actions during that time versus receiving it later. But I think that in a lot of contexts, disasters that we see do unfold more slowly and the time at which households need support isn't necessarily in anticipation of the first sign that the shock is there, but, but they do need support at key moments. And we're very often too late with that support. And I think that's my takeaway is not just that timing is important, but that having these triggers that sort of push everyone into action, having these sort of deadlines, these lines in the sands that you say, OK, we need to get support to households by this moment is really important for making sure that support does reach households in, in the window that they need it. So I think it's both having a better sense of 
of the timing of needs, which I think we were able to, to start to unpack in this paper. And I can imagine there being quite a bit more useful, probably quite descriptive work done on that, but also then being able to say, okay, well, what does that mean for the triggers that trigger action? And what does that mean for things like when you actually approve action plans and how that actually needs to happen way before um, if you're going to be able to get support to households when you need it? Great points. I am fully on board with those. Stefan, have you seen any other exciting policy innovations that are similar to the ones we've we evaluated or others that show promise? Well, you know, it fits into to, to a broader set of uh, of of work. You know, this is, but the, the interesting thing here is that we bring something and we can evaluate it at very much at a micro level. So there's been a lot of thinking for a while now about how to get somehow much more quickly cash in the hands of of governments, of agencies, of NGOs, based on this kind of trigger-based systems. And what is really nice about this is that actually it completes somehow the jigsaw because it's one thing to get money via some some system with a trigger-based, for example, trigger-based insurance or trigger-based finance system in the hands of a government. What you want is really that's in the hand of people as well. And so so we're getting this this here. It of course all has led to, and definitely my experience, a lot of people being interested in this particular type of work. And then people trying this out. Um, and you know, Ruth uh, has as has mentioned the some of these kind of directions already, but uh, it's worth then trying some more of these things out. So there's work ongoing in Niger also with uh Ashley, you're involved in it or also very much leading it related to the timing of transfers in a context that's probably closer linked to the kind of seasonality crisis, you know, where you start thinking more about timing and and, and why, why would that matter? And then there is all kinds of work that uh, can be done uh, further. Um, and we definitely have more in the pipeline on work in Bangladesh and Mozambique and in other places to do this. And must say, based on my inbox, it seems like other people are getting quite interested in, in a lot of this kind of work as well. And I think this is a place where researchers, by getting early on involved in some of these evaluations, can probably also give confidence to those in the policy world who love their own business as usual, which is exposed responses, uh, quite slow, but they know how it works, to actually trying to really do, do these things based on these triggers, on these forecasts even, and to be much earlier uh, reaching people. Thanks, Stefan. Uh, that is very much my hope too. Ruth, what are your hopes for how this research will be taken up? Yeah, I just wanted to go back to something that Stefan mentioned earlier, which is that one nice thing about being able to do this evaluation was being able to, to document the innovation. And so I think I would really like to hope that as people read this paper or learn about it, that they that they sort of take that on board. And, you know, this sort of innovative way of thinking about how you provide support to households in an emergency. So I think that um, that's one way I'd really like to see it taken up sort of on sort of, OK, let's try this innovation out. Another hope would be, I think, something else that was nice that we were able to do was to evaluate a humanitarian response and that's not something that is normally done so I would also really hope that that sort of shows yes it can be done and maybe encourages others to do it encourages more um, humanitarian actors in this space to be curious about what the impacts of of their support are and how how they can increase that impact. Thanks Ruth and thank you Stefan and Ben for joining us for this discussion on one of my favorite topics 
Thank you for listening to the CSE Research Podcast. We hope you'll join us for the next time. To listen to more episodes from the series, go to the CSE website. Thank you all. Ciao. Bye, thanks. Bye, thanks.